From NPR News in Washington, D.C., this is Weekend Edition. I'm Aisha Roscoe. Good morning. Russia launched missiles against Ukraine Saturday, ending a brief break in attacks. We'll have the latest. And a report from authorities in Kansas details alleged sexual abuse by Catholic priests. Plus, we talked to actor Allison Williams, who stars in the movie Megan, about a killer AI robot. Let's just be honest about that. She is the star. In some interviews, they introduce me as the star, and I'm like, I'm just going to stop you there. It's just <laughs> we're dealing with fact here. She's clearly our star. It's Sunday, January 15th. News is next. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Giles Snyder. President Biden is heading to Atlanta this morning. He is to deliver a speech at Ebenezer Baptist Church, where Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. served as pastor until his assassination in 1968. Today would have been his 94th birthday. NPR's Tamara Keith reports on Biden's trip on this MLK holiday weekend. The current pastor at Ebenezer Baptist Church is newly re-elected Democratic Senator Raphael Warnock. White House Director of Public Engagement Keisha Lance Bottoms says ahead of his visit, Biden spoke with Senator Warnock. They had a wonderful conversation about the significance of this historic event, including the fact that the president is the first sitting president uh, to speak at a Sunday service at Ebenezer in its history. She says Biden's remarks will describe the nation at an inflection point in history, with reflections on Dr. King's legacy and how the nation can move forward together. Tamara Keith, NPR News. Biden is traveling to Atlanta a day after the White House said more classified material was found at his home in Wilmington. The White House says five more pages were discovered last week. To California now, which is dealing with more flooding caused by yet another atmospheric river storm. Annalise Finney of member station KQED reports on the Russian River in the San Francisco Bay Area. The Russian River is expected to peak at 32 feet at 11 a.m., That's technically flooding, but that level of water isn't expected to significantly impact local homes and businesses. Chris Godley is the Sonoma County Director of Emergency Management. We're never quite out of the woods, but certainly the prospects are looking much, much better than they were last week. But we do highlight for our residents here that this is really just the beginning of our traditional rainy season. As the last of this storm passes through the region, Godley says residents should still watch out for toppled trees and down power lines. For NPR News, I'm Annalise Finney. The president has approved an emergency declaration for California. He's also declared a disaster for Alabama following Thursday's storms that packed tornadoes. Police in Houston looking for suspects in a shooting overnight that left at least four people wounded and one dead. It happened outside a club. Harris County Sheriff Ed Gonzalez says dozens of shots were fired from inside a vehicle. It looks like over 50 shots were fired here, uh, which is a very scary situation considering there's like a mobile food truck and Again, the number of patrons that were outside. Gonzalez says the injured were all transported to hospitals. Most of the people on board the passenger plane that crashed in Nepal today are now reported dead. Officials say 68 of the 72 passengers and crew were killed. The plane crashed while attempting to land at a new airport in a resort town in central Nepal. This is NPR News. 
This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Sharon Brody in Boston. There is some snow in the forecast. National Weather Service meteorologist Matthew Belk says greater Boston will have mostly a mix of rain and snow starting later today and lasting into tomorrow. Snow would be more likely uh, during the nighttime hours, uh, then transitioning over to some rain. As you go farther south along Route 3 down into eastern Plymouth County and even into the Upper Cape, snowfall will be a little bit heavier down there. A winter weather advisory is posted for Plymouth and Barnstable counties, including Plymouth, Falmouth, and Provincetown. Bands of ocean effect snow could put the total over more than four inches in some of those areas. Wind gusts could be as high as 45 miles per hour. The wind this morning is causing the Steamship Authority to begin canceling some of its ferry service between Cape Cod and the islands. Boston's 53rd annual MLK Memorial Breakfast is scheduled for tomorrow's Martin Luther King Jr. holiday. Organizers call it the longest-running celebration of its kind in the country. Political and community leaders are expected to attend. Later tomorrow at Boston University, BU holds its annual celebration of the lives and legacies of Dr. King and his wife Coretta. Also, the new monument on Boston Common honoring the Kings is now open. Teachers in Melrose will be in their classrooms Tuesday when school resumes after the long holiday weekend. The teachers union and the school committee agreed to a tentative three-year contract last night. The deal includes a 10% raise over three years and gives teachers more preparation time. On Friday in Melrose, union members voted to strike this weekend. If a contract was not reached, members do still need to approve the agreement. In sports, last night the Celtics beat the Hornets 122 to 106, and the Bruins beat the Maple Leafs 4 to 3. The Bees and the Celtics are both off today. It is 34 degrees in Boston. This is WBUR. WBUR supporters include PBS with Zora Neale Hurston claiming a space from American Experience, a new biography of the influential author and anthropologist. Tuesday at 9, 8 Central on PBS. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Aisha Roscoe. Thank you for joining us. Russia carried out another barrage of missile strikes in Ukraine yesterday, killing several civilians in an apartment building in the city of Dnipro. This amid contested claims over who controls a town in eastern Ukraine after months of fighting and signs of infighting among Russian forces involved. Joining us now is NPR's Alyssa Nadwerny in Kharkiv and Charles Maines in Moscow. Welcome to the program. Thank you. Alyssa, what's the latest from these airstrikes? On Saturday, Russia launched a massive missile attack throughout the country. It hit several cities from Lviv in the west to Kharkiv in the northeast, where we are now. There was heavy damage to energy infrastructure. Here in Kharkiv, the whole city lost power, though crews were able to get it partially restored just several hours later. And what's known about the strike on the apartment building in Dnipro? Yeah, it's a pretty devastating scene. Uh, it was a nine-story apartment building. Many people were trapped. The, the whole building is destroyed. And this happened on a Saturday afternoon, so a lot of families were home. Rescue efforts have been happening. 
So far, 20 are dead, including a 15-year-old girl. 73 people were injured, including 14 children. The city's deputy mayor said rescue work is ongoing, and emergency crews are periodically pausing their work for moments of silence to listen for people trapped under the rubble. Wow. Um, Charles, these Russian attacks come as Moscow claimed its forces' first real victory in months, saying they had control over the town of Solodar. Do they? Well, you know, Russia insists it has liberated Solodar. Uh, this is a small mining town in the east of Ukraine in the Donbass. And that's welcome news for the Kremlin if it's true. But the real story here seems to be Russian infighting over who gets credit for the victory, if, that is, there's credit to be had. You know, Solodar has really laid bare this simmering rivalry between the Russian defense ministry and a Kremlin-backed mercenary force known as the Wagner Group, and in particular with its founder, a man by the name of Yevgeny Prigozhin. The first Prigozhin proclaimed Wagner fighters had single-handedly seized Solidar. Uh, then the defense ministry insisted its forces had taken the town and made no mention of Wagner, which angered Prigozhin. And their squabbling continues in what appears to be a battle for favor and influence in the Kremlin. Alyssa, what is Ukraine saying about these Russian claims about this town? Well, Ukraine has maintained that the battle for Solodar is ongoing, and that's despite several European and U.S. analysts saying it's most likely controlled by Russia. I just want to stress here how small this victory is. Analysts say the fall of Solodar doesn't mean the imminent fall of a nearby city, Bakhmut, which is perhaps the real Russian target that's been an important place for Ukrainian communication, moving troops. I talked with Olha Edgdonov. He's a Ukrainian military expert here. Let's listen. He says capturing Bakhmut, capturing Solodar is more about politics back in Russia than a strategic military operation. Of course, the ongoing fighting in the area is drawing heavy losses for Ukraine too, which raises questions about if this isn't important militarily, why fight so hard to keep it? Charles, another big development this week was a surprise shakeup in Russia's military command. Who is in charge and what's the significance of this shift? Yeah, you know, the new commander is in a way the old commander. Uh, General Valery Garesimov, uh, President Putin's longtime chief of general staff, is formally taking over the military campaign. But Garasimov was heavily involved in the planning of the initial uh, Russian invasion in February. In fact, many people think he deserves blame for what went wrong there. And that's why this shakeup also looks to be political, almost an extension of the squabbling we saw in, in Solidar. You know, Garasimov takes over command from a man named Sergei Sorovikin, uh, who was championed by hardliners like the Wagner founder, Yevgeny Prigozhin, that we talked about earlier. Uh, now, the defense ministry explained the change, saying it reflected the commander's widening scope of responsibilities, which some people took as a sign of Gerasimov's intentions to further escalate. Uh, yet, as we saw yesterday, that doesn't mean Russia has abandoned Sarevikin, uh, the previous commander's real stamp on this war, which is the Russian strategy of trying to bomb Ukraine into submission through attacks on infrastructure and cities at, of course, uh, as Alyssa mentioned, a terrible human cost. And Alyssa, this is all happening as Europe and the U.S. pledge more weapons to Ukraine. When will those weapons arrive? That's right. In anticipation of a Russian offensive in the spring, a lot of weapons which previously were thought to escalate things too much are now heading to Ukraine. In addition to armed vehicles from Germany, France, and the U.S., 
The UK Prime Minister announced on Saturday that they would be sending Challenger 2 tanks and artillery systems to Ukraine. We don't know when those tanks will be delivered, but British media reported that some could be sent immediately. And then coming up this week, Ukrainian forces will travel to Oklahoma to get trained on the Patriot missile defense system, which is a longtime request from Ukraine. The hope is better air defenses will help prevent what this country experienced this weekend. That's NPR's Alyssa Natwerney in Kharkiv and Charles Maines in Moscow. Thank you both so much. You're welcome. Thank you. Okay, there are a lot of classified documents showing up where they should not. First with former President Trump and now with President Biden, which made us wonder why. Matthew Connolly has puzzled over that question a lot. He's a professor of history at Columbia University and has just written an op-ed about this for the New York Times. Good morning. Good morning, Aisha. So stepping back, how common is it for documents to be labeled classified or secret, and who gets to decide? Well, the last time the government reported out this kind of data, they told us that government officials were classifying information tens of millions of times every year. At one point in 2012, this was over 90 million times a year. So that's three times every second. And so who is, the, who is deciding that? Just members of the government? Well, yeah, there's over a million people, 1.3 million people that have a top secret security clearance. And there are millions more people who have lower levels of security clearances. And every single one of them, if they're dealing with some program or some capability that's considered secret or top secret, they're supposed to classify that, you know, whether it's an email or PowerPoint or what have you. So is this happening more now than in the past? Well, the short answer is no one knows because, you know, even the government watchdog over the security classification system, he said that we can no longer keep our heads above the tsunami. They can't even count how many times they're creating new secrets every year. So, I mean, you've called this the national secrecy complex. Like, what, what are the dangers of labeling so many things as classified? Well, the, the real problem is that the American people can't hold their government to account. Because even though there are millions and millions of new secrets being created every year, there are only a couple of thousand people, 2,000 in the U.S. government, who has, whose full-time job it is to review records and decide what can be released. So ultimately, I'm more worried about, you know, how it is we're going to keep our leaders accountable. And, and so, I mean, I guess one of the issues might be that with so much stuff being classified, that it's hard to say when you say someone's caught with classified documents, the level of importance and significance of that. That's what uh, I would imagine. Absolutely right, Aisha. And, you know, as an historian, I've looked at thousands of documents that are classified top secret. And I can tell you, not all of them are super interesting. There's an old joke about how a lot of secret intelligence is not actually secret. And what is secret is not always very intelligent. <laughs> okay. Well, I mean, what, what about the president? What is the president doing with all this classification stuff? Is, is he rubber stamping it? Is he putting a rubber stamp on everything classified? Well, presidents like secrets because it's the only, virtually the only form of presidential power that's fully sovereign. Mm -hmm. They're basically accountable to no one. And so, yes, like presidents hang on to these secrets and they're very reluctant even to let other people classify information. But, you know, once they create the secrecy systems, that secrecy has a power all its own. And these millions of other people can create secrets for their own reasons. 
And so as a historian, not a politician, what strikes you when you analyze the cases of President Biden and former President Trump? Yeah, so a lot of the coverage has been about, you know, whether they put our national security at risk. And the short answer is going to be, we don't know, right? But to me, the real scandal here, and this goes back decades, this isn't about any particular administration. It's the fact that public officials are basically stealing our property. When they refuse or fail to return records to the National Archives, they're taking our history, right? And so in this particular case, it's a little bit like, you know, somebody moved out and they ended up taking some of your papers with them. And some of those papers could be really important. In the case of President Trump, he claimed that they were his property and we had no right to them. And he's been fighting ever since, refusing to give it back, right? In the case of Biden, he's telling us it was a mistake. Now, that said, I'm a little troubled that one of the folders where they found these documents apparently was marked personal. It's far from personal. It's actually public property. It's your and my property. So what can be done and, and how realistic are possible reforms in about 30 seconds we have left? All the talk is about how we need new and better rules. What we really need is for Congress and the courts to step up and do their jobs. They're the only ones who can actually bring this system under control. And what type of things could they do? Like what type of laws? They need the power of appropriations. Only 1% as much money is spent on releasing information to the public as they spend on keeping secrets. And the courts could finally overturn the precedent that prevents judges from even looking at classified information when citizens try to get it released from the public. That's Matthew Connolly, professor of history at Columbia University. His book, The Declassification Engine, is out next month. Thank you for being with us. Thank you, Aisha. You're listening to NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Good morning. I'm Sharon Brody. It's 918. Ahead on Weekend Edition Sunday, you'll hear about a new report from investigators in Kansas that details decades of allegations of sexual abuse by Catholic priests. Also, you'll take a look at recent series of large lottery jackpots. That and more head on Weekend Edition. And coming up at noon on the New Yorker Radio Hour, you'll get a conversation about age and elected office. Tomorrow morning, listen to WBUR to get a rundown of local events taking place to honor the Reverend Martin Luther King Jr. Also tomorrow, you'll get the story on local food banks bracing for a drop in federal funding. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum, presenting Medal of Honor, showcasing artistic interpretations of gold from the Renaissance and today. GardnerMuseum.org. I'm Joel Snyder with these headlines. President Biden is preparing to deliver remarks this morning at Atlanta's Ebenezer Baptist Church as part of the Martin Luther King Jr. holiday weekend. The trip comes a day after the White House said five additional classified pages were found at his home in Wilmington. The president has approved an emergency declaration for California, which is dealing with flooding and power outages caused by a string of storms moving in from the Pacific. He's also declared a disaster for Alabama following Thursday's storms that packed tornadoes. And SpaceX says the weather at Cape Canaveral is favorable for the launch later today of the company's powerful Falcon Heavy rocket on a mission for the U.S. Space Force. I'm Giles Snyder, NPR News.
Support for NPR comes from this station and from American Cruise Lines, cruising the Mississippi River where passengers can experience Southern culture and visit Civil War battlefields. Learn more at AmericanCruiseLines.com slash NPR. And from the Annie E. Casey Foundation, using research and evidence to develop solutions that help families and communities create a brighter future for young people. More information is available at AECF.org. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Aisha Roscoe. There's a new report on abuse that took place for years in Catholic churches in Kansas. It's just the latest revelation in a series of investigations across the nation, spurred by the Boston Globe's reporting two decades ago that exposed widespread sexual abuse by priests in the Catholic church there. We have Celia Yopis Jepson of the Kansas News Service here with us now. Thank you for being with us. Glad to be here. So this is a report by the Kansas Bureau of Investigation after an investigation that took four years. How did that probe come about and what were the findings? Well, the Catholic Church in Kansas has published the names of priests before where there are substantiated cases of abuse. But the Archbishop of Kansas City and Kansas, Joseph Nauman, asked for the Kansas Bureau of Investigation to help after a law firm reviewed church files and found 15 clergy who they felt needed further investigation. Now, in a 25-page summary, the KBI says it looked through thousands of documents, talked to nearly 140 victims, and found 188 clergy suspected of various criminal acts, you know, rape, taking indecent liberties with a child. And the report says that the Catholic Church protected these individuals for decades. Many priests would simply be transferred to another church. And and that was the sort of thing that we, we've seen all over the country, including Boston and other places. This was a massive investigation that looked at five decades worth of records. So have there been any charges? No. Um, investigators talked to victims, witnesses, and suspects in 15 states. The KBI then forwarded 30 cases to prosecutors, but those attorneys said in every instance that the cases were too old to be prosecuted under Kansas law. In addition, some of the suspected perpetrators are dead. Some of the victims are dead. The KBI faced other difficulties, too. Uh, some of the priests refused to talk to investigators. Some of the victims uh, wouldn't talk because they had signed non-disclosure agreements as part of settlements with the Catholic Church. A lot of the abuse that the KBI investigated happened decades ago. Is this a changed Catholic Church today? Like, have there been meaningful reforms? Well, in 2020, the Pope required every diocese to set up a system for reporting sexual abuse. But that's within the church, not to law enforcement. Now, according to the Kansas report, the church's data shows a drop over the years in substantiated abuse cases. The KBI says that the Catholic Church has become more willing to collaborate with these types of investigations, too. And the Archbishop of Kansas City issued an apology to the victims. He said, quote, you cannot read this report without your heart breaking. Are survivor groups satisfied now that this report is out? 
No, they they aren't. As I mentioned, Catholic dioceses in Kansas have published names before, but the Survivors Network of those abused by priests, or SNAP, wants to know if there are new names on this list. And they say it's hard to know whether abuse has decreased since people often don't come forward right away. SNAP also wants Kansas lawmakers to set penalties for clergy and church staff if they know child abuse is happening and don't report it to law enforcement. And they want Kansas to change its laws so that old cases can go to court. That's Celia Yopis Jepson of the Kansas News Service. Thank you so much for joining us. You're welcome. Disney is forcing its employees to return to in-person work at least four days a week later this winter. It's the latest big employer to bring people back to the office since the pandemic began. But it's also a move that can create a lot of friction between a company and its workers. David Garfield is the global head of industries at Alex Partners, an international consulting firm. He joins us to give us the employer's perspective on this. Welcome to the program. Thank you. Hi, Aisha. Uh, You know, thank you so much for joining us. So you've been advising CEOs on when or if or how much their companies should return to the office. Like, what have they been telling you? First of all, CEOs are saying that their businesses have been hit with wave after wave of disruption from COVID to supply chain disruptions through inflation and new technologies. And they feel that they've lost some productivity and some connectivity among employees as a result of remote working. And so they're revising their work policies to try to bring people together face-to-face and back to the office, striking the right balance between um, pulling people in and preserving some measure of flexibility. A lot of the people on the other side of this, the workers, may say that it's just their bosses don't trust them to be really working when they're at home. They think they're just doing their laundry and stuff. Who's right about that? Right, that's a great point. So for productivity, there are certain activities that that do benefit from face-to-face, even with all the benefits of of technology. One is uh, tasks like product design and development. If you are designing a physical product, the difference between feeling it in your hands and seeing how people react is meaningful. Another is just sensitive topics like uh, designing organizational changes or discussing M&A transactions. And then a third is unplanned encounters, the you know bumping into someone in the hallway or having the extra chat outside of the conference room, which has been shown to contribute to innovation. I think you uh, said that one CEO said they never thought they'd be held hostage by a millennial. Like, is that is that a a common sentiment? No, then that's a real quote. I mean, CEOs really are struggling with this challenge. And one CEO said to me, I never thought I'd be held hostage by a millennial. Um, So that gives you a sense of the the challenge and the frustration. At this moment, do employers have more leverage because there is an idea um, that the economy is more on more shaky ground and that there could be a possible recession? Sure. So even though 
people are worried about recessionary conditions and feeling the, the big pinch of inflation, um, leverage has not flipped to employers entirely just yet because the job market is still hot. Part of the reason was um, since COVID hit, there has been a lot of small business job growth. But any which way, the, the labor market is still relatively tight. And so employers still have to you know, really appeal to their workforces. Um, and that's why you've seen, I think, a lot of careful crafting of these policies and in some cases, you know, trialing and piloting things. I mean, so looking into the future, I know you don't have a crystal ball, but it has the way people worked um, in these sorts of desk jobs, you know, for lack of a better term, changed for good? Like, even if you have people coming back to the office, are they going to be there five days a week like they were in the past? I think we're going to see employers being more flexible. I think the ones that, that try to uh, rewind the clock and go all the way back to pre-pandemic conditions are not going to be successful. Uh, too many people have experienced remote work and hybrid work. And frankly, there's been too much progress in the use of technology and adapting work to uh, a remote or to a hybrid approach. That's David Garfield, the Global Head of Industries at Alex Partners. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you very much. It was great to talk with you. A ticket holder in Maine is $1.35 billion richer today after winning the Mega Millions drawing Friday. It was the fourth largest lottery prize in U.S. history and the third billion-dollar-plus jackpot in just the past six months. So what's going on with these huge prizes here? We spoke earlier with Victor Matheson, economics professor at the College of the Holy Cross and a lottery expert. And I started by asking him why jackpots are getting bigger. Over the past 10 years, both of the big nationwide lotteries, so there's two of them, there's Mega Millions and then there's Powerball, they have both made intentional changes that have made the uh, jackpots bigger and bigger over time because that's what they think is going to generate the huge sales. And of course, they're all about maximizing the amount of revenue that they're generating for the lottery. And of course, uh, from that, the amount of money they're generating for state governments. So, so tell me about the, the changes that they made. Like, how, what did they do to make these jackpots bigger? So there's three big things that happened, okay? So the first one is about 10 years ago, actually back in, in 2010, these big national lotteries kind of called a truce and said, hey, instead of having half of the nation divided into one lottery and half into the other, let's just allow tickets to be sold in every state in the nation. So this effectively makes both Powerball and Mega Millions a nationwide lottery. Almost every state offers this, uh, all but five states. And uh, that means there's 300 million potential ticket buyers out there, which means money can accumulate into that jackpot pretty quickly. So that's number one. The second thing that both of these lotteries have done is, first of all, both of them have made the uh, lotteries $2 instead of $1. That effectively means money gets put into that jackpot pool 
twice as quickly. So the amounts that uh, these jackpots basically accumulate twice as fast as they used to. And then the last thing that they've done is they've made the lottery harder to win. Uh, both of these games are about one in 300 million chances, right? Uh, this is wildly improbable that you're going to win. Uh, but it also means that it's uh, likely that in any given drawing, the jackpot rolls over to the next drawing. I, I guess when the, the, the lottery gets into a big number, like a billion, you're going to get probably more people wanting to get a piece of that, to try to get a chance at that, right? Right. That's exactly why the lottery has been designed and engineered to generate these huge uh, jackpots, because, you know, this is what really uh, generates the excitement and the buyer interest. So uh, for Friday's $1.35 billion jackpot, we probably had about 500 million dollars worth of tickets sold for that drawing. That is roughly 20 times the number of tickets that is sold when the jackpot's at a mere, you know, $10 million. So can you break it down for me? Like, you know, if I buy a $2 ticket, like where does all the cash go? So uh, some of it goes to the retailers. So out of that $2 ticket, 10 cents goes to the uh, outlet that sells the ticket, right? So your 7-Elevens, your convenience stores, your gas stations. Next, uh, you have money going into the prize pool. So out of that $2, about a dollar goes to prizes. The rest of that, about 10 cents of it goes into administration, advertising, uh, you know, just running the show, which means that you're left in the end with about 70 cents or so, 80 cents or so going to the state governments. Depending what state you're in, that may just go to uh, the general fund to spend anywhere you want. Some states, for example, North Carolina and Georgia, designate it towards education. Other states like Colorado specifically put it into parks and recreation. And what about addiction? Like, you know, with jackpots going up, is there a worry that people will get more into the lottery because they're seeing, oh, a billion dollars, you know, is is that a concern? Absolutely. So gambling addiction is something we should always be concerned about. For the vast majority of people, uh, buying lottery tickets is exactly what it's supposed to be. It's It's an entertainment product. You know, $2 is a small price to pay to dream about what you would do with a billion dollars. But uh, for a small portion of the population, and uh, different measures differ uh, uh, about how addictive this product is, but somewhere between, say, half a percent and 5% of the population has real difficulty with gambling, and uh, it becomes addictive, and they meet the criteria for, for problem gambling. Every state that has legalized a, a lottery has allocated at least some portion of the those lottery proceeds towards problem gambling, and it is clearly a problem uh, for a small but significant number of people. Victor Matheson, economics professor at the College of the Holy Cross in Worcester, Massachusetts. Thanks for coming on. Well, thank you for having me, and I hope your numbers have come up right. You're listening to Weekend Edition from NPR News. It feels like one of those unstoppable forces of modern life. A call from an unknown number always trying to sell you something. Hi, uh, I'm with Ryan Real Estate, R-I-A-N, corporate office in Dallas, Texas. 
No one loves spam calls, and most of us just ignore them or send them straight to voicemail. But Planet Money's Jeff Guo brings us the story of someone who tried to fight back and made some money in the process. A couple years ago, Nathan Barton was getting five, ten, sometimes 15 spam calls every day. It's been everything. Auto warranties, medical insurance, gym memberships. Nathan's a stay-at-home dad, and it was the middle of the pandemic, so he had some time on his hands. And he decided he was going to fight back against these telemarketers. Because there's actually this federal law which says that if a telemarketer calls you illegally without your consent, you can sue them and you can win up to $1,500 for every call you get. So Nathan thinks, okay, let me try this out. He starts picking up the phone and taking down names. And yeah, a lot of these calls are coming from scammers and identity thieves, but a surprising number of them you can trace back to legitimate companies, like big recognizable brands. It just takes some detective work because a lot of telemarketers won't tell you what company they're with, at least not at first. Sometimes you'll go through a, an agent or two and then they'll transfer you to a name that you know. So then you're like, oh, big company X is the one who's actually behind this. Bingo. That's when Nathan would bring on the lawsuit. Nathan was suing these companies using the Telephone Consumer Protection Act, the TCPA. And this law has actually been around for decades. Margot Saunders is a lawyer at the National Consumer Law Center. She says Congress was trying to give regular Americans a way to stop these spam calls. I think they envisioned that the individuals who received unwanted calls would be able to go into magistrates' courts, small claims courts, and teach the callers a lesson and they would stop making the illegal calls. And for the most part, this law has worked for Nathan. At this point, he's filed dozens of lawsuits, mostly by himself, and he's settling for thousands of dollars, sometimes much more. But it hasn't all been easy. Earlier this year, one of the telemarketers fought back. They convinced a judge that Nathan's lawsuit was frivolous, and the judge ordered Nathan to pay for the telemarketer's legal fees, which came out to $40,000. Eric Troutman is a defense lawyer who often represents companies that get sued by people like Nathan. You know, there's instances where someone might go off and, and buy 80 cell phones just so that they can collect wrong number calls. He says some of these people are abusing the system, but Nathan says that's not what he's doing. He's just trying to use the law as it was intended to teach telemarketers a lesson. So he's appealing that court decision. I'm not going to put up with a lifetime of these junk calls because I disagree with how a judge interpreted a case. Nathan says as long as the telemarketers keep calling him illegally, he plans to keep suing them back. Jeff Guo, NPR News. Who gets to record and broadcast what happens in the House of Representatives? Independent media or the government? C-SPAN says it should be the eyes of the public, but others argue that media cameras tempt lawmakers to prioritize grandstanding over legislating. Hear that conversation later today on All Things Considered. Tune in by telling your smart speaker to play NPR or your member station by name. This is NPR News. 
This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Sharon Brody in Boston. Teachers in Melrose have reached a contract agreement with the school committee, and that averts a strike on Tuesday. Union members had voted to hit the picket line if they did not get a contract over the weekend. The tentative deal was announced last night. Melrose teachers will get a 10% raise over the length of the contract and will get more time to prepare lessons. This week, the Massachusetts Gaming Commission continues to focus on sports gambling. On Tuesday, the commission holds a public hearing to accept input on regulations related to sports betting. Also Tuesday, the panel renews its review of the applications it's received for mobile sports betting licenses not tied to an existing casino or slots parlor. Mobile betting is expected to launch in the state in March. On Beacon Hill Tuesday, another cabinet swearing in marks a milestone for Massachusetts. Yvonne Howe will become the first woman and first person of color to lead the state's chief economic development department. It is 35 degrees in Boston, in and around Boston for the first part of the day. Some rain around this afternoon and tonight. It could be a mix of rain and snow further south in eastern Plymouth County and the Upper Cape. There could be two to four inches of snow today and tonight. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Delta Dental, reminding you that a healthy smile is a powerful thing. Discover the connection between oral and overall health at expressyourhealthma.org. Hey, this is Steve Inskeep with the Morning Edition. Mary Louise Kelly from All Things Considered. And I'm Lisa Mullins at WBUR. You know, my favorite car ever was my parents' Chevrolet Impala. My favorite all-time car was a little red Mini. My parents' red VW Bug painted white to make it look bigger. I don't know where that car is today, but I do know that an old car can be really valuable. Favorite or not, your current car can be turned into All Things Considered. It can be turned into Morning Edition. Go to WBUR.org. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Data IQ, a platform for everyday AI to help organizations make AI part of their daily business, designed to elevate people, teams, and companies. D-A-T-A-I-K-U dot com. And from LifeLock by Norton, reminding consumers that sensitive information sent online may not always be secure. Learn more at lifelock.com slash NPR. This is NPR. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Aisha Roscoe. Before I look down, I know it's there. The crow's head I was clutching in my dream is now in the bed with me. That's the start of Bad Cree, a gripping thriller all about a young Cree woman, Mackenzie, who finds out what happens in her dreams does not stay in her dreams. The living nightmares send Mackenzie on a journey from Vancouver to her hometown of High Prairie to face the grief and the culture she left behind. Bad Cree is written by Jessica Johns, a member of Sucker Creek First Nation in Northern Alberta. Johns joins us now. Welcome to the program. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. So, you know, I mean, that's a really striking image to start a novel with, a severed crow's head in someone's hand. Like, did you always have that image in mind as a starting point for the story? You know, it wasn't a crow's head initially. Initially, I think it was a a branch. That was the opening image. I really wanted readers to know what they were in for right from the bat. So, uh, you know, I wanted to really set the tone and I hope I did that. It definitely set the tone, like no no doubt about that. (laughs) Oh, but tell us about Mackenzie. 
you know, she's this young woman who's dealing with so much loss. And then she starts having these horrible dreams. Yeah, Mackenzie is the protagonist of this story. She is a young Cree woman who has been separated from her family, from her home community, and self-separated. She makes the choice to leave years prior to the, the fictive present of the novel. Because of loss and grief and trauma, she leaves uh, because she's incredibly avoidant. She leaves because she thinks leaving will be a way to help her ease a lot of the pain that she feels from losing a couple of very important family members. But once these dreams, nightmares start happening, she realizes quite quickly she needs to go back to her family. And that decision, she doesn't come to it lightly. She finds going home almost as terrifying as the dreams that are happening to her. And she has to confront a lot when she does that. I mean, she's hurt her family in leaving. She's, she has to be held accountable for the things that she does as well. So there are forces at play here, manipulating Mackenzie, even texting Mackenzie. I mean, without giving too much away, like, can you talk about what these forces represented? Yeah, a lot of that is tied to her homelands and tied to settlement and the legacy of violence of colonialism. So where Mackenzie is from is in Treaty 8 territory in High Prairie. Oil was found in many places in the area. And so oil field companies have, have moved in to extract from the land. And that has changed the landscape in ways that when Mackenzie goes home, she sees a very different place than when she left. They extracted from the land and when the oil was depleted, the communities are still left there to live in this space where they have been for since time immemorial. And they now have to deal with this devastated landscape. And similarly with Mackenzie's family who experience loss and then have to deal with what that means, there's aftershocks of what that is. And these forces are very closely tied to that. So I understand you started writing this story after an instructor told you that writers should not write about their dreams. Like that wasn't a good thing to do. So why did that comment send you in the absolute opposite direction? For Cree people, and the way I was raised, the knowledge that I have about dreams is that they're incredibly important. They're a way of communicating with our ancestors. They're a way of knowledge production. Um, my whole life, I've been taught to listen to my dreams and interrogate them and to you know, know that they're very valid forms of knowledge and, and forms of storytelling as well. So to have a prominent professor who has been uh, quote unquote successful in so many ways in the writing and publishing world, give this advice to a room full of aspiring writers. And, you know, he was a, he was a white man. It really, it made me mad. Um, I mean, I don't think in, in writing there should be any hard and fast rule anyways, but I was just like, you have no idea what you're talking about. Dreams are valid. In fact, I'm going to write a story about dreams that validate them in all their beauty and wonder and knowledge. 
I have to ask you, have you heard from that professor since you, now you got the book published? Are you going to send him a copy? I think he should buy multiple copies, <laughs> so I won't be sending him one. <laughs> you got to get, get, that, get them royalties. I feel you. I feel you on that. It was such a flippant comment. It's one of those things that would mean nothing to him because he has no clue that he wouldn't have given it a second thought. And for me, you know, that stuck with me. And that is, again, often something that happens with marginalized groups. Yeah, this is a book that's ultimately about grief. Um, did you learn anything yourself about what it means to cope with losing a loved one and, and what we owe to those who have passed on and, and what we owe to those who remain? I lost my cookum as well when I was my grandmother when I was younger. And through the course of writing this novel, I also lost my papa, my grandpa, two people who I was really close to and just held a lot. I think that a lot of bad Cree and the navigation of grief and loss was in many ways my own. I'm still learning a lot about my own cultural knowledge and throughout the past couple of years, I've received some teachings about what death means for Cree people, where we go, you know, where our ancestors live. And that has been really, really helpful. And I think because I try and imbue those teachings into the book, I'm hopeful that they were as comforting to Mackenzie as well. That's Jessica Johns, author of Bad Cree. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you so much for having me. When a doll tells you it's going to be your special friend forever, watch out. So we need to talk about school. Can I bring Megan? Katie, you know that's not possible. Then I'm not going. Oh, come on, Katie. Let's just talk about it. Hey, hey, hey. Let me go. Whoa. Hey. What's going on? Hey, Katie. Go. What are you doing? Stop it. Katie, calm down. Let her go. Megan, turn off. Are you sure? In the new movie, Megan, a young girl, Katie, and her Aunt Gemma learned this the hard way. Megan is an AI-enabled doll meant to be a child's perfect playmate. It dances and sings like a pop star, paints lifelike portraits. But Katie and Aunt Gemma soon learn there's another side to Megan that's not so nice. Allison Williams plays Aunt Gemma in Megan. She's also the movie's executive producer, and she joins us now. Welcome to the program. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really thrilled to be here. Well, I am so glad that you are here, too. In the movie, Gemma is an engineer, and she develops toys, including this prototype, Megan, who is the star of the movie. Um, Let's be honest. <laughs> Let's just be honest about that. She is the star. In some interviews, they introduce me as the star, and I'm like, I'm just going to stop you there. It's just we're dealing with facts here. She's clearly our star. But she's this robot doll. Gemma gives the doll to her niece, who's grieving her recently deceased parents. 
but it's kind of like a modern Frankenstein. Like she's given her niece a creation she doesn't fully understand. Yeah, not only is she giving it to her, she's kind of made it for her. So yes, of course, I love the Frankenstein analogy because it's built from a similar spirit of like exploration and innovation and wanting to try new things. And it's not at all done thinking about the repercussions in the moment. It's much more about progress. And it's also not done thinking about the ramifications for Megan herself. Gemma doesn't stop and think, what happens if she gains sentience? Like, what do I do then? Mm. What's my responsibility to this other, quote, child that I'm spawning? Um, And so I think it is a classic example of even in the best intentions, bad things can happen. So, you know, Gemma ends up being Katie's caretaker and... Because she doesn't know a lot about kids, she leans on Megan for help. But even when Katie's parents were alive, they would use an iPad for her or this other doll to, you know, kind of help keep her entertained. It's a bit of a slippery slope, right, with technology and kids. Well, I mean, I think one of the things it does is plug right into that area that's causing a lot of quiet angst among parents and people alike in terms of a subject area for a movie to explore. That's the sweet spot. The stuff that we're worried about in a quiet place that we can thrust right into the open thematically with a movie. You know, it's tough because my uh, five-year-old is looking at the tablet right now. If she wasn't, she'd be up here. She'd be she'd be in this room. I have to say I'm a little disappointed that she's not part of this, but I understand it's easier for you to focus if she's not here. <laughs> yeah, you know, so it, it's one of those things where now the genie's out of the bottle. Can you so put it true. back in, really? Well, I think the other thing is that You want to raise kids who have today's version of literacy, which is digital and technological literacy. There are so many trade-offs, which is why it's such a thorny subject. It's not a simple one that's black and white. Otherwise, we would have seen one movie about Terminator would have come out and we all would have stopped in our tracks. (laughs) We would have stopped it, but yet we we keep going. Yes, because it's helpful. It's unbelievably helpful. (laughs) And even as a parent, there are so many applications of technology that are supremely helpful. And as I was watching Megan, and I see that she has the ability to take a kid's temperature and heart rate from across the room, I'm sitting there thinking, you know, what that would be great to not have to wake up a kid to take their temperature sounds great to me that would be great but is it also about how difficult it is to be a caretaker right because you know essentially I mean Gemma would would be a single parent to this child even with two parents and a little bit of help you know babysit on a couple of days you still are stretched to the max with a child because they require 24 hour like just care yeah is that also what the movie's about just the amount of care that a child needs definitely and it's also about examining this person one of the things that drew me to Gemma in the first place was that she seemed to fit outside of or at least in a combination of different archetypes I had seen before she is the kind of person and I know a lot of these people I'm sure you do too who when you ask them if they want kids they're kind of like either ambivalent or unsure, or maybe if the right partner came along, but either way, it's not their preoccupation. Finding a partner is not what she's most focused on at this point in her life. She's finally getting to do what she loves, and that is like all she can think about. Imagining that person suddenly getting custody of a kid, I don't know a ton of people that would have been prepared at the drop of a hat to accept this charge. And Gemma just does not have the tools to know to do that, doesn't feel like she has the access and the resources to. So she does what she can. She reaches for the thing that she does know. She reaches for this thing that she does trust, which is Megan. 
I mean, you know, when you talk about um, the parents, but there's also the child in this case. I mean, you have Katie who does form this really deep connection to Megan. And it seems like that connection to Megan, it does give her some comfort, at, at least at first. And it does make her feel like she's important and she matters, right? Totally. One of the things she says about Megan is that when she looks at me, it feels like I'm the only thing that matters, which is how she remembers her mom looking at her. And hearing that is a very big moment for Gemma in terms of realizing exactly the many ways that she's messed this up. But I think Gemma knows that Megan's sole preoccupation will be Katie. And so Katie's dependence on Megan is very obvious from the beginning. She needs someone to reach out to her. And here comes this toy slash companion slash maternal figure that is sort of the best of all worlds. And she never runs out of patience, which is the the key. <laughs> no, and that's and it's very easy for us to imagine why that would make such a dream playmate for her. But it also uh, lends itself to a lot of developmental problems. And there's a point in the movie when Megan is taken away from Katie and she's experiencing withdrawal. And it's even more destabilizing because she's attached not only a chemical and hormonal dependence on this doll, but also any sense of comfort, any sense of home, any sense of family has now been attached to this object. You know, in Megan, there is this idea about the potential for technology to fundamentally change or threaten the nature of friendship and family. Yes, I do think uh, it is asking this question about why our reflexive response to anything that's not real is that it's worse than what is real. It's a really interesting question because if you think about real families that are made of humans, I mean, <laughs> non-robotic family members, um, some of them are terrible. Some of them are <laughs> horribly dysfunctional. Yeah. So it really is asking this, like, why do we just want kids to grow up appreciating what's real versus whatever works best? My instinct is that all the justification I need is that one is real and one is not, but I can't I can't make a better case than that. That's kind of where I max out. But I think made families and as dysfunctional as it is for a while the three of them are a sort of created family and I think that will always be an interesting thing to watch as we move into a time in our history where luckily the idea of family has been shaken up a bunch and they're starting to take on all these new forms um it's just another version of that that's a little bit exaggerated that's Allison Williams you can see her in Megan which is playing in movie theaters across the country thank you so much for speaking with us today thank you so much for having me and thank you for asking these questions it was a great conversation This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Aisha Roscoe. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Noom, a personalized weight loss program based in psychology for helping people change their habits and conquer their goals. Learn more at Noom, N-O-O-M dot com. And from the Doris Duke Charitable Foundation, which aims to support the well-being of people and the planet for a more creative, equitable, and sustainable future. And from the William T. Grant Foundation at wtgrantfoundation.org.
Thanks for listening to 90.9 WBUR. Good morning. I'm Sharon Brody. It's coming up on 10 o'clock as Weekend Edition Sunday continues. And at noon, you will consider just how old is too old in politics. You'll hear about a change in attitudes about age in the past few decades, and you'll also get a gerontologist's take on how to evaluate a candidate's competency for office. Also on the New Yorker Radio Hour, Deepti Kapoor talks about his new novel, a thriller of crime and corruption set in India's capital. With climate change, an accurate forecast matters. How do we help countries and businesses better manage their weather and climate-related challenges as the weather in the world becomes crazier? On the next How I Built This, we meet a man who's trying to make weather data more reliable. And the story of how internet cookies evolved into a privacy nightmare. That's coming up on the next Planet Money and How I Built This from NPR. Today at 3 on 90.9 WBUR. I'm Midday Host Jack Lepiars, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, 89.1 WBUH-Brewster, and you can listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. NPR News in Washington, D.C. This is Weekend Edition. I'm Aisha Roscoe. Good morning. More classified documents have been found in President Biden's personal residence. We'll have the latest on that. And the pandemic has torpedoed some big brick-and-mortar stores. But Dollar Trees, Dollar General, those are doing great. More on that ahead. Also, Oscar Mayer is looking for drivers. What's it like being behind the wheel of a 27-foot-long hot dog? You get very attached to the Wienermobiles that you drive, which is super fun, too. You can always tell them apart by the license plate. So I drove Relish Me and Big Bun. It's Sunday, January 15th. News is next. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Giles Snyder. President Biden is preparing to speak in Atlanta in honor of the late Martin Luther King Jr. NPR's Windsor Johnston reports the president will deliver remarks in about an hour at the historic Ebenezer Baptist Church, where King was pastor. Georgia Senator Raphael Warnock, the pastor of the church, extended the invitation for Biden to speak at today's memorial service. White House spokesperson Keisha Lance Bottoms notes that Biden will be the first sitting president to headline a Sunday service at the church. This is an inflection point in history, and the president will deliver remarks reflecting on Dr. King's life and legacy uh, and the way that we can go forward together. Biden won the 2020 election with strong support from black voters. After pledging to do more to expand voting rights and address other racial justice issues, the president's remarks come on what would have been Martin Luther King Jr.'s 94th birthday. Windsor Johnston, NPR News. 
President Biden's trip to Atlanta comes a day after the White House said more classified materials were found at his home in Wilmington. The White House says five additional pages were found during a search of Biden's private library. President Biden has declared a major disaster in California as dangerous storms continue to batter the West Coast, causing devastating damage. Here's NPR's Marie Andrusevich. The president is making federal aid available to areas affected by the winter storms, which began on December 27th and have caused flooding, landslides, and mudslides. The aid can include money for home repairs, temporary housing, loans for uninsured property losses, and other programs to help businesses and individuals. President Biden has also declared major disaster in Alabama, where tornadoes destroyed homes and knocked out power to tens of thousands in the southeast last week. An airliner carrying 72 people has crashed in Nepal. Dozens of bodies have been recovered. NPR's Lauren Freyer reports from Mumbai. This was a domestic flight by a local carrier, Yeti Airlines. The plane took off from Nepal's capital, Kathmandu, and crashed just before it was due to land in Pokhara, a popular tourist town in central Nepal that's known as a gateway to the Annapurna Circuit, a Himalayan hiking route. Witnesses tweeted video of firefighters aiming hoses at a smoking crater at the crash site. Nepal has a spotty aviation safety record. Authorities had just inaugurated a new airport in Pakara earlier this month with a longer runway and have been in the process of shifting flights over to the new facility. Lauren Fryer, NPR News, Mumbai. Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky has confirmed that at least 25 people were killed in a Russian missile strike that hit an apartment building in the eastern city of Dnipro. And in a post on Telegram, he said another 43 remain missing. You're listening to NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Sharon Brody in Boston. A winter weather advisory is posted for Plymouth and Barnstable counties, including Plymouth, Falmouth, and Provincetown. National Weather Service meteorologist Matthew Belk says right now the forecast calls for two to four inches of snow today and tonight across parts of southeastern Massachusetts. One of the forecast challenges is going to be temperatures, which will be very critical. As you know, you just go from 33 down to 32, and then you start going from wet to white. So that's going to be something we're watching very closely as uh, the day progresses. In the immediate Boston area, the precipitation will be mostly rain, and some snow could be in the mix, mostly this evening into tomorrow morning. Belk says wind gusts could be as high as 45 miles per hour. That wind is forcing the steamship authority to cancel some ferries between the Cape and Islands. Teachers in Melrose have reached a contract agreement with the school committee to avert a strike on Tuesday. The tentative deal, which includes a 10 percent raise over three years, was announced last night. Union members voted Friday to hit the picket line if they did not get a contract over the weekend. The Massachusetts Gaming Commission holds a hearing this week to gather comment on sports betting regulations. Commissioners also will conduct more reviews of the companies that have applied for mobile sports betting licenses not tied to a casino or slots parlor. Mobile sports betting is expected to launch in the state in March. Saugus needs to bid farewell to life as a town and begin to function as a city. That is the opinion of the chair of the select board in Saugus. Anthony Cogliano says he wants Saugus to switch to a city form of government. He says he thinks residents should be allowed to vote for one person to lead the city rather than the five-person select board. It takes three votes to hire a town manager, and it takes four votes to fire him. So 
the town manager is at the whim of the board of selectmen. And I just think that that is just an outdated way to handle things. Cogliano wants an election on the change to be held as early as 2025. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the estate of Joan B. Kroc, whose bequest serves as an enduring investment in the future of public radio and seeks to help NPR be the model for high-quality journalism in the 21st century. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Aisha Roscoe. Good morning and thank you for joining us today. This past week shaped up to be a tough one for President Biden. He's facing a Justice Department investigation after classified documents were found at his office in Washington, D.C., the one he used before he became president, as well as his Delaware home. And just yesterday, White House lawyers said they found more classified material there. NPR White House correspondent Asma Hallett joins us now. Good morning, Asma. Good morning, Aisha. So what do we know about these documents other than the fact that they are classified? Well, we don't know a whole lot. Uh, The White House has not been particularly forthcoming about these documents. They've been vague about the timeline, and they only confirmed their existence after news reports. Uh, They really, you know, only started providing information after CBS News first broke the story on Monday. Uh, That's even though the first batch of classified documents were actually found a week before the midterms in a locked closet at a private office in D.C. that was used by President Biden after he left the vice presidency. Uh, The president himself said earlier this week that he was surprised by this existence of these documents. Uh, He did not know what was in them. But I will say, you know, this all escalated rather quickly. It's not just a Justice Department inquiry that's going on now. On Thursday, the attorney general announced that he's appointing a special counsel, which really does elevate the seriousness of this issue. So uh, things do seem to be moving pretty fast on this story. As you suggested, uh, uh, Attorney General Merrick Garland has appointed a former Justice Department official Robert Herr to lead the probe. And, you know, it took Garland months to assign one to the investigation looking into the documents found at former President Donald Trump's Mm Mar-a-Lago estate. You know, we do have a a very strange situation, as you suggested there, where you now have both the former president and the sitting president who are both being investigated by a special counsel. Uh, The attorney general said this week that the appointment underscores the department's commitment to both independence and accountability in particularly sensitive matters. And, And Garland, you know, the attorney general came into this job really wanting to restore the independence and trust that Americans have in the Justice Department as this nonpartisan institution. And the point of a special counsel Council is really to allow for independence from day-to-day Justice Department oversight. You know, it's meant to avoid any suggestion of interference, and that's what we uh, see happening here, th- this desire to do that. So what is HERS mandate here? I-, I-, I mean, we are dealing with a sitting president, and as we learned in the last administration, it's not a lot that can be done to a sitting president. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, to that point, uh, I will say that the attorney general himself described the situation as being extraordinary circumstances. Um, it is rather extraordinary, you know, to uh, look into a sitting president. And the Justice Department has taken the position that a sitting president cannot be indicted. Uh, you know, I, I will say, though, Aisha, you know, there are still questions, though, that remain about how classified documents came to be found in places that they were not supposed to be. And so the Department of Justice wants her to investigate the possible unauthorized removal and retention of classified documents found at two sites connected to President Biden. And and that is essentially their mandate. And, And how is the White House responding? 
Well, the White House insists that the president did not know about these documents. Uh, they also insist that they've been cooperating with the Justice Department and willingly sharing information with the DOJ as soon as they discovered the papers. Uh, they've said that they also plan to continue sharing information with the newly appointed special counsel. Uh, a White House lawyer said this week that they're, quote, confident that a review will show that these documents were inadvertently misplaced and that the president and his team acted promptly upon discovering this mistake. But, you know, Aisha, the reality is that I think as, as anybody sort of paid attention to some of the public conversation this week around this, I mean, the White House has created some of its own communication problems. They really were not particularly forthcoming. They've yet to explain, you know, why when they were explicitly asked about additional documents earlier in the week, they did not come forth and disclose that there were indeed more papers. In about the, the 30 seconds we have left, there there's legal consequences but political consequences. Mm -hmm. Republicans are threatening to look into this. What's going on with that? Yep, you're right. Uh, the Republicans have the House Speaker, the newly Republican-appointed House Speaker Kevin McCarthy has said this week that Congress has an obligation to do this. Um, you know, the challenge for President Biden is that this document story has really taken over everything else, and it becomes this political liability when he's been mulling plans to announce his own re-election bid for presidency. Um, today, he's heading to Ebenezer Baptist Church, the historic church in Atlanta where Martin Luther King Jr. once preached. Uh, he's going to be the first sitting president to deliver a Sunday sermon, and, you know, really, that speech has not gotten much attention over the weekend because of these classified documents. That's NPR White House correspondent Asma Hallett. Thank you so much, Asma. My pleasure. With a raucous caucus, House Speaker Kevin McCarthy has his work cut out for him. And that's especially true with the debt ceiling. That's the country's borrowing limit for spending it has already agreed to. And it's reliably become the subject of brinkmanship by congressional Republicans. There's so much concern about a national default given McCarthy's perceived weakness as House Speaker and how fractured his Republican caucus is, that people are floating creative workarounds. NPR correspondent Danielle Kurtzleben has been looking at these schemes, and she joins us now. Thank you for being here, Danielle. Of course, Aisha. So Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen says the U.S. will reach the debt limit on Thursday, but they can use what she calls extraordinary measures to push off default until this summer. They can move some things around. And, and that may feel like a lot of breathing room, but the first of these workaround ideas we're going to talk about needs a lot of time to work, right? Yes, right. Now, this is something called a discharge petition. Now, what this is, is in the House, if a bill is sitting in committee, not going anywhere, House members can sign on to a petition that would push the bill through for a vote, even if leadership hasn't scheduled that vote. Now, you need a majority of members, 218, to sign on to this. And the thinking here is that a handful of Republicans might join Democrats in doing so. But yes, this would take a lot of time because before a vote can happen, the bill has to be in committee for 30 legislative days. And that's legislative days. The House isn't in session every day or even every week. So it could be months before the bill could proceed. And even then, it would need all of those signatures plus a few more days until a vote. So, yeah, this isn't a last minute option. It means the bill would have to be introduced well before default would potentially happen. So I'm hearing people talk about discharge petitions, using discharge petitions for a lot more than avoiding default. But what you're describing 
sounds like it's it's very rare and it sounds like it is procedurally complicated so it may not be a silver bullet to congressional dysfunction. Absolutely right. It doesn't happen very often and for very good reason. And so there are some other ways that people have floated to get around the debt ceiling. They always talk about minting that trillion dollar coin. I don't know why they haven't done that. Or just say the debt ceiling doesn't exist. Like, you know, you just use your mind because of the Constitution. Like, how would that work? (laughs) Right. So let's start with the first of those, the trillion dollar coin. Now, this idea has been around since the big debt ceiling fight in 2011. That's when it got popular. The idea leans on a law from the 90s that allows the Treasury to mint commemorative platinum coins of any denomination they want. Now, the intent of this law was to make commemorative coins, not to avoid a debt <laughs> crisis. So that this isn't what they meant to do. But the idea here is that this law creates a loophole allowing the government to literally print money. So to print a coin worth a trillion dollars, then what would happen is the Treasury deposits the coin at the Fed and poof, then there's money to keep paying the bills. So that's one idea. And we'll come back to that. The other idea you mentioned was invoking the Constitution. Specifically, there is a section in the 14th Amendment that says that the validity of the public debt of the United States shall not be questioned. So the idea here is that President Biden could invoke that and the U.S. could keep paying its debt obligations. But To be abundantly clear here, these are untested ideas. They are very controversial, to say the least. But the reason they keep coming up every time we have this debt ceiling conversation is because defaulting would be extraordinarily, catastrophically bad. So these unorthodox ideas just keep coming up. I mean, in desperate times, some people would say would call for desperate measures. I mean, would a platinum coin or the 14th Amendment just invoking it, and I guess that would be the president just saying it or putting it in writing, would that avoid a crisis? Well, this is the thing. It's not clear because, first of all, legal scholars differ on whether that 14th Amendment route would be constitutional. So if the president invoked that, there could be all sorts of legal fights that would proceed out of that. Meanwhile, coming back to the coin, in 2021, both Janet Yellen and the Biden White House rejected the idea of minting the coin. But you know, let, let's say hypothetically that even if the administration were behind either of these ideas and even if they were solidly legal, and those are huge ifs, these potential solutions could create other problems. For instance, if you minted that coin, you could be dragging the Fed into a political fight, which is exactly where the Fed doesn't like to be. And also there are economic problems. Here's Mark Zandi. He's chief economist at Moody's Analytics. So you own a 10-year bond? You want to make sure you're getting paid uh, on a timely way for 10 years and you're watching these machinations, gimmicks and legal challenges. And you're saying to yourself, there's a pretty good chance I'm not going to get paid at some point in the next 10 years. Therefore, you got to pay me more to take this risk or I'm just out of here. So in other words, a platinum coin or the 14th Amendment might leave investors spooked, which means that the economy might still sustain some real damage. That's NPR correspondent Danielle Kurtzleben. Thanks so much, Danielle. Yeah, thank you, Aisha. You're listening to NPR News.
This is 90.9 WBUR. Good morning. I'm Sharon Brody. It's 1018 and ahead on Weekend Edition Sunday. You'll get the latest from Brazil. Also, you'll hear about research into the overlap in the populations of transgender and non-binary people and people with autism. That and more still to come on Weekend Edition. Coming to WBUR City Space, January 25th, historian and journalist Dart Adams and Danish rapper Slyman discuss their new book, Instead We Became Evil. For tickets, go to WBUR.org events. Turn your old car into new news. Support the programming you love by donating your vehicle to WBUR. Learn how at WBUR.org cars. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Lauren Holleran with Gibson Sotheby's International Realty in Cambridge, real estate brokerage that is grounded in data and committed to thoughtful design. LaurenHolleran.com. I'm Giles Snyder with these headlines. President Biden is preparing to deliver remarks at Atlanta's Ebenezer Baptist Church shortly as part of the Martin Luther King Jr. holiday weekend. Amid the controversy of over classified documents, the White House says five more pages were found at his home in Wilmington last week. House Oversight Committee Chairman James Comer says Congressman George Santos will be removed from Congress if he is found to have broken campaign finance laws. Comer spoke on CNN this morning. Santos is at the center of controversy over falsehoods on his resume and life story. And President Biden has approved a uh, disaster declaration for California, which is dealing with flooding and power outages caused by a string of storms moving in from the Pacific. He's also declared a disaster for Alabama following Thursday's storms that packed tornadoes. I'm Giles Snyder, NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Viking, committed to exploring the world in comfort, offering a small ship experience with a shore excursion included in every port, destination-focused dining, and programs designed for cultural enrichment. Viking.com. And from Noom, a personalized weight loss program designed to give people knowledge to set new goals and the tools to stick to them for good. Learn more at Noom. N-O-O-M dot com. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Aisha Roscoe. In Brazil, the investigation into those who attacked the capital has widened to include the country's former president. It was a week ago today that thousands of supporters of far-right ex-leader Jair Bolsonaro stormed Brasilia. Video on social media shows the mob in this post screaming victory as they ransacked the Congress, the Supreme Court, and the president's offices. Yesterday, the man who was supposed to be in charge of security guarding the buildings was arrested upon his return to Brazil from Florida. We are joined by NPR South America correspondent Carrie Kahn. She is in Rio de Janeiro. Good morning, Carrie. Good morning, Aisha. So the latest on the investigation into the incident is that authorities are investigating the role of ex-president Bolsonaro. What is the evidence they have against him? 
A Supreme Court justice gave the authority to add Bolsonaro to the ongoing investigation, and he cited this Facebook post that Bolsonaro put up two days after the attacks, claiming the current president, Luis Inacio Lula da Silva, didn't actually win the election. It falsely claimed that officials actually chose Lula. The justice said even though the post was after the riots, it speaks to Bolsonaro's possible conduct before the riots. Uh, Bolsonaro took down the post, and he condemned the violence in a tweet, but he has been pretty silent since losing narrowly to Lula last October and has long stoked false claims about fraud in Brazil's elections. You know, he never conceded to Lula. He didn't go to the inauguration, as tradition dictates, and he left the country two days before it. So, and like he said, he's in Florida, just outside Disney World. So, so what about this head of security for the Capitol's police department? What are authorities saying about his role? They want to know what he did or did not do to safeguard the seats of government. His name is Anderson Torres, and he had left the country two days before the riot, also to Florida. Um, previously, he was Bolsonaro's justice minister and then assigned to head the Capitol Police after the inauguration. But authorities say once in charge, he gutted the leadership of the force. He misled federal officials about security plans for the protest and then fled. Torres flew back from Florida yesterday and was arrested in Brasilia. So what has the current president, President Lula, said about the investigation and how it's proceeding? Lula seems to get angrier each day, and he's been very vocal that he believes the police authorities, officers, and even members of the military were in on the riots. Eu estou convencido que a porta do Palácio do Planalto foi aberta para que gente entrasse. He says, I'm convinced the door to the presidential offices was opened to allow people to get inside. Uh, there are reports that there was a delay for hours to clear an encampment in front of Army headquarters where rioters had retreated after the attack. Some reports say that that was for safety reasons. Others say it points to more evidence of collusion on the part of the military. Um, those Bolsonaro supporters had been in front of that Army headquarters and camped there for months. Fueled by disinformation, they believe they can convince the military to overturn the election results. Um, investigators are also searching for who financed the riots. Thousands more people were transported to Brasilia on more than 100 buses. Authorities are looking at some powerful business leaders in the country, and authorities, that, authorities say they paid for those tickets. And, and so in about the minute we have left, does the Supreme Court and Lula have the backing to lead such a widespread investigation uh, going after powerful financial backers and politicians, too? The investigation is quite extensive. More than a thousand people have been arrested. But I was talking to political analyst Gustavo Ribeiro. He has an English language digital platform, The Brazilian Report. He said overwhelmingly Brazilians are disgusted with the storming of Brasilia and it's politically advantageous for Luda to go big now. Let's be honest. This is not merely a legal case. This is also a political case. So you cannot go after political actors that are so relevant in the country without that momentum behind you. But he warns justice moves slowly in Brazil, so this could take a while to settle the storm. That's NPR South America correspondent Kerry Kahn. Thanks, Kerry. You're welcome. 
Today, in about 30 states, it's the last day to sign up for health insurance on healthcare.gov. And so far, it has been a banner year for ACA enrollment, otherwise known as Obamacare. About 16 million people signed up by the end of December, about a million more than a year ago. Julie Appleby covers health insurance markets for our partner, Kaiser Health News, and she joins us now. Good morning. Good morning. So why have so many more people signed up this time? Like, what's different now than compared to past years? Yeah, it's real interesting, right? Um, We're seeing, you know, close to 16 million people, as you said, and that's up from, you know, 14 and a half in 2022, which itself was a record. Um, So this trend appears to be going up. And people who study this say there's several factors, but probably the biggest one is there are these enhanced subsidies that were first put into effect with the stimulus bill. And then they were extended in the Inflation Reduction Act, which was passed in August. And basically, these subsidies help people pay part or even in some cases, all of their monthly premium. So the new subsidies folks are saying might be one of the main reasons why people are signing up because not only the amounts higher for a lot of people, but they've also eliminated this thing that was formerly called the subsidy cliff. So if you made a dollar more than the upper income amount, you wouldn't get any subsidy and your premium cost could go up a lot as a result. So they've eliminated that cliff. So basically folks on the higher end of the income spectrum can qualify for a subsidy so long as their cost might be more than eight and a half percent of their income. So, you know, when I was covering the White House and and the Trump administration, there were these efforts to repeal Obamacare. When that didn't happen, um, the prior administration slashed some of the funding for it. So how has that changed? Yeah, that definitely was true. They they substantially cut the funding for outreach and what are called these um, navigators or assisters. And these are people that help consumers enroll in coverage. The Biden administration has restored that funding And they've also done a couple other things. They've increased the duration of the open enrollment period, which the Trump administration had shortened. So there's more money and there's more time. And that could be another reason why people are um, signing up more. So, you know, with more people enrolling and more people getting help, you know, that is more people who will have health care. But in this country, there's still a lot of people without health insurance, right? That is correct. I mean, there's some, there's like good news and bad news, right? There, we're at the lowest rate ever last year at 8% of the population who were uninsured, but that's still 26 million people. And there's a variety of reasons that people remain uninsured. I mean, some people just don't want insurance, right? Some people can't afford it. It's expensive, especially if you don't get a subsidy. A lot of people's jobs don't offer it. And some people still don't know that these options are out there. Okay, so uh, they have the rest of today to do it at healthcare.gov. But does the marketplace close up shop, you know, when the until the next enrollment period? Is it just, you know, done? No, they don't entirely hold, you know, gone fishing sign in the window. No, they they don't close up. They remain open, but only for certain folks. Look, if you have something that happens, uh, what in the jargon is called a qualifying life event, like, you lose your insurance for some reason. Maybe you lose your job. Maybe you get divorced. Maybe you get married. I mean, there's all kinds of reasons you might have a qualifying life event. Then you can sign up under a special enrollment period. And also new, started late last year, but it also new is for certain low-income folks, there is no um, 
only one annual period. It's every month they could sign up. That's Julie Appleby of Kaiser Health News. Thank you so much for being here. Thanks for having me. People who are transgender or non-binary are more likely to be autistic. One large study found that is three to six times more common. Researchers are working to understand the connection and how society can be more accommodating to people who live at this intersection. Leslie McClurg from member station KQED in San Francisco has more. Underneath towering oak trees, Izzy Dyer closes her eyes as she leans back on a green bench in Buena Vista Park. I'm just always really tense. Attention that never really goes away. The 23-year-old clutches her rainbow-colored purse to her chest. This is Dyer's favorite spot in San Francisco. Normally when she's walking around, she has to have on headphones. Otherwise my anxiety spikes and it's just, I can't help but like gasp at every little thing and just like jitter and jolt. Dyer was three years old when she was diagnosed with autism. Her teachers said she was impulsive and hyperactive. As a little girl, she hated sundresses and loved Hot Wheels. She says she started questioning her gender as early as four years old. I think growing up, I had a hunch always that I was way more masculine than my other female peers. As she's gotten older, Dyer has wondered if her testosterone is higher than average. Today, she identifies as gender fluid. I always had bushy facial hair and these little spots on my chin. Maybe there is something that is related to the biology. Dr. Lawrence Fung is a psychiatrist at Stanford University. He is studying why people who are transgender or non-binary are also more likely to have autism. He says hormones may be a factor. Females on the spectrum seem to have more testosterone and masculine features on their faces. On the other hand, males on the autism spectrum, they have more feminine features. For example, clinicians have noticed that males with autism can have a high-pitched voice. Fung's research also shows that the brains of autistic men and autistic women are different. The part of the brain responsible for sensory and motor functions may hold the key to this sex difference. Eventually, neuroscience could help explain why people with autism are more likely to question their sex assigned at birth. There is a clear overlap between these groups, but a lot more research is needed to understand the roots of what could be at play. Danielle Sullivan is curious what scientists will discover about her lived experience. I didn't really like being a woman. I didn't feel like a woman. I don't really feel like a man or male either, which is why I've sort of settled in the agender bucket. Sullivan is autistic. She counsels others on the spectrum in Lafayette, Colorado. She's a 37-year-old neurodiversity coach. She was diagnosed with autism five years ago. It was relieving because it explained why she'd always felt a little like an outsider. A lot of people seem to have like a handbook that I had missed somehow for like how to date, how to talk to people, how to dress. Today, Sullivan is comfortable in her own skin as an agender or non-binary person with autism. But growing up was hard. I felt like I was failing constantly and like I just couldn't do it. And there was some kind of internal brokenness about me. She wishes society was more accepting and more accommodating to people with autism. Sullivan has two children who are both on the spectrum. One of their quote unquote behaviors, they're yelling, they're shaking their hands, they're rocking. It's like they're fine. They're happy. Leave them alone. I just wish there was less judgment around that and more curiosity and interest. She says the autistic brain is not a problem or something to be feared. 
In many ways, her mind is more open and less hindered by society's typical structures. There's something about autism or about the autistic brain that, at least in many of us, makes us really question norms and like why norms exist and what they're for. A lot of that has encouraged me to think through like, well, where is gender sneaking in there? Where is sex in the body sneaking in there? Many experts say the psychology that Sullivan is pointing to may be driving the overlap between autism and gender identity. Some of the strengths that many people with autism have is looking at systems that are done because we've done them that way forever and calling it out as BS. Dr. Aaron Jansen is a psychiatrist at Northwestern University Feinberg School of Medicine. And saying, this doesn't make sense to me. This isn't my experience. And I don't have the same kind of social pressure or expectation or buy-in to those social pressures and expectations. That is definitely true for Izzy Dyer, back in San Francisco, sitting at Buena Vista Park. There's something about having a place on the spectrum and feeling othered by the world, but still just being here no matter what, that really just like over the years kind of strengthens your skin. Dyer says her greatest gifts are her uniquely wired brain and her gender fluidity. Together, they're the roots of her resilience. For NPR News, I'm Leslie McClurg in San Francisco. You're listening to Weekend Edition from NPR News. In Nepal, rescuers have now stopped searching through smoldering debris for survivors of a plane crash, as it's too dark to continue. The passenger airline was carrying 72 people, and it crashed this morning just short of where it was supposed to land in central Nepal. Foreigners as well as children were among those on board. We go now to NPR's Lauren Freyer, who covers South Asia from our bureau in Mumbai. Welcome, Lauren. Hi, Aisha. So where, where was this plane headed and what are investigators saying, at least initially, about why it crashed? So this was a domestic flight by a local carrier called Yeti Airlines. It was a twin-engine turboprop plane, and it took off this morning from Nepal's capital, Kathmandu, for on a short flight, what was supposed to be a short flight, headed for Pokhara. Um, it's Nepal's second largest city, and it's a big tourist hub in central Nepal. It's known as the gateway to the Annapurna Circuit, which is a popular hiking trail. This flight crashed just short of where it was supposed to land there. And video recorded by a resident, someone who looks like they were watering their plants on a roof terrace or balcony, shows the flight's final moments. The plane sort of careens sideways against this deep blue sky and then goes behind buildings. And then you hear this crash. Nepali TV has been broadcasting from the crash site. It looks like this sort of big smoldering crater. Part of the fuselage of the plane is kind of dangling on the on the cliffside there. Dozens of bodies have been recovered. 72 people are believed to have been on board. So this looks like Nepal's deadliest airline disaster in more than 30 years. Do we know who the victims were? 
So out of the 72 people on board, four of them were crew members. And we have seen a copy of the passenger manifest now that includes 15 foreigners. The largest nationality was Indians, five Indian citizens. There are also Russians, South Koreans, um, an Irish citizen, Australian, French. The manifest also shows three children and three infants listed um, as passengers. Now, the process of IDing those bodies could take some time um, because the wreckage is partly in this gorge and it's been difficult for rescuers to, to reach it. You mentioned blue skies visible in that video of the crash. Nepal is in the Himalayas. It's home to Mount Everest where we know weather can change quickly. Do officials believe that was a factor here? They're really looking at everything. I mean, you can see the blue sky in that video, but wind, for example, is not something that you can see. They're also looking at possible mechanical problems. The aircraft was 15 years old. You know, mountains and variable weather can make it difficult to fly planes in Nepal. But the country also doesn't have a great aviation safety record. Around 300 people have died in plane crashes in Nepal over the past two decades or so. And Pakara, officials had actually just inaugurated a new airport there earlier this month. It was built by the Chinese. They did a ribbon cutting. And they've been in the process of shifting flights over to that new facility. This plane didn't make it. The new airport is now transformed into a crisis center. And Nepal's new prime minister, who's been in that job barely three weeks, is overseeing rescue operations from there. And he has declared tomorrow, Monday, a day of national mourning. That's NPR's Lauren Freyer in Mumbai. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks, Aisha. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Sharon Brody in Boston. Schools in Melrose will be open as usual Tuesday. Teachers have reached a contract agreement with the school committee to avert a strike that would have begun after the long weekend. The tentative deal was announced last night. Melrose teachers will get a 10% raise over the length of the contract and will get more time to prepare lessons. Another milestone is set for this week in state government. On Wednesday, former Boston City Councilor Andrea Campbell will be sworn into office as Attorney General. Campbell becomes the first black woman ever to serve as AG in Massachusetts. This morning, work crews have been repairing the broken water main that flooded streets in Jamaica Plain. The break on Heath Street early yesterday flooded the basements of homes. It also buckled the pavement. Fifteen residents had to spend the night in hotel rooms because it was not safe for workers to restore power to their homes. Keep in mind, the MBTA has some disruptions this weekend. That's to accommodate demolition work at the Government Center Garage in Boston. Today on the Green Line, shuttle buses are replacing trains between North Station and Government Center. On the Orange Line, there's no service today between North Station and Back Bay. WBUR supporters include Whitehead Institute. Join director Ruth Lehman on January 26th in conversation with science writer Carl Zimmer. wi.mit.edu events. 
In April 2021, the owners of Europe's biggest soccer clubs announced plans to form their own exclusive Super League with only the biggest and best invited. I was shocked. This is a coup d'etat attempt on the highest offices of the biggest sporting industry in the world. A new documentary tells the inside story of how it happened and how it fell apart. That's on the next All Things Considered from NPR News. Today at 5 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR News Station. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Jarl and Pamela Moan, focusing on civil liberties, foster youth, public radio, and the arts. And from the William T. Grant Foundation, working to harness the power of research to make a difference in the lives of children, teens, and young adults for more than 80 years. Learn more at wtgrantfdn.org. And from the Public Welfare Foundation, committed to advancing transformative youth and criminal justice reforms. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Aisha Roscoe, and it's time to play the puzzle. Joining us, as always, is Will Shorts. He's puzzle editor of the New York Times and puzzle master of Weekend Edition. Hi there, Will. Good morning, Aisha. So could you please remind us of last week's challenge? Yes, it came from listener Michelle Valancourt of St. Paul, Minnesota. I said, name a famous living person, first and last names. If you drop the last letter of the first name, you get an element on the periodic table. And if you drop the last letter of the last name, you get the chemical symbol of another element. Who is this? And the answer is Tina Fey. Drop those letters, you get 10 and F-E, which is the symbol for iron. Okay, uh, that is impressive. <laughs> um, this week's challenge was popular, like with over 2,300 correct entries. There's a lot of smart people out of here. Um, but our puzzle winner for this week is Eric Nispel of St. Louis, Missouri. Congratulations and welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. This is a real pleasure. How long have you been playing the puzzle? Well, let me be clear. I've been listening since the postcard days, but I've only been submitting, uh, shall I say, as a chemistry teacher periodically uh, (laughs) during the email era. So I've only uh, submitted a handful of answers over the years. Okay, so you said that you are a chemistry teacher, so you had to get this right, right? That's right. Every few years, Will pulls out a periodic table puzzle, and those are the ones that I really lean into, and I make sure that I I find the answer. And this one was a fun one. I had a good time with this one. Well, Eric, I got to ask you, are you ready to play the puzzle? If this morning's Wordle score is any indication, I may not be, but Aisha, you promised to help me, so uh, let's get to it. I promise to help you, um, and, and we don't even worry about that word over here. We all about the puzzle. <laughs> so ta- take it away, Will. All right, Eric and Aisha, every answer today is a word, name, or phrase with four or more A's and no other vowels. For example, if I said state whose capital is Montgomery, you would say Alabama. Here's number one, movie with the line, play it, Sam. Casablanca. You got it. Number two, island off the coast of Africa that's the home of lemurs. Madagascar. Uh Uh-huh. A swift sailing vessel with two hulls. Catamaran. You got it. How about the star of MASH? 
Alan Alda. Uh-huh. Now, the following answers all have five A's. And it's a, first one is a word said by a magician when performing a trick. Abracadabra. Uh-huh. A shortcut between the Atlantic to the Pacific. Atlantic and the Pacific shortcut. So you don't have to go around the tip of South America. What's that shortcut through the middle? Uh, through Central America. Panama Canal. Panama Canal is it. How about this? A simile in five words meaning mentally acute. A simile in five words? Uh-huh. It's a five-word expression. It's a simile that means mentally acute. Okay. Uh, first of all, what's the opposite of dull? Sharp. There's your sharp. As sharp as a? Sharp as a tack. As sharp as a tack. There's your five A's. And here's your last one. Spanish for see you tomorrow. Hasta la vista. Hasta. Uh, no, hasta's right. Manana. Hasta manana. Hasta manana is right. <laughs> oh, my God. Oh, my goodness. This was hard. But, Eric, you did an amazing job. How do you feel? Uh, very much uh, relieved and enjoyed. And uh, I've got an audience of some of my best students here at John Burroughs School in St. Louis listening. So uh, thank you very much. This has been awesome. Thanks so much. It's been great. <laughs> Oh, really? Wow, they're listening. Well, hey, students. <laughs> so for playing our puzzle today, you'll get a weekend edition lapel pin as well as puzzle books and games. You can read all about it at npr.org slash puzzle. And Eric, what member station do you listen to? Well, it's 90.7 on the dial, but it's number one in our hearts. It's KWMU St. Louis Public Radio. I love that. That's Eric Nispel of St. Louis, Missouri. Thank you for playing the puzzle. Thank you. Thank you very much. This has been great. So, Will, what is next week's challenge? Yes, it comes from listener David Rosen of Bethesda, Maryland. Name a food dish in 10 letters. The last syllable consists of a consonant and a vowel. Change that syllable to a single consonant sound, and you'll name another popular food item in two words. What foods are these? So again, food dish, 10 letters, last syllable is a consonant and a vowel. Change that syllable to a single consonant sound, and you'll name another popular food item. In two words, what foods are these? When you have the answer, go to our website, npr.org slash puzzle, and click on the Submit Your Answer link. Remember, just one entry, please. Our deadline for entries this week is Thursday, January 19th at 3 p.m. Eastern. Don't forget to include a phone number where we can reach you. If you're the winner, we'll give you a call. And if you pick up the phone, you'll get to play on the air with the puzzle editor of the New York Times and puzzle master of Weekend Edition, Will Shorts. Thank you, Will. Thank you, Aisha. Big changes may be coming to your local shopping center. Department stores are trying to reinvent themselves. Bed Bath & Beyond is teetering on the brink of bankruptcy. And dollar stores are going on a grand opening spree. NPR's Alina Selyuk is here to tell us more. Hey, Alina. Hello, hello. So let's start with the big picture. Are we seeing more stores closing or opening in the U.S.? Yeah, this may be a bit surprising to folks. For years, we heard brick and mortar is dying. That's definitely not true. 
In fact, last year, we saw the trend turn. Store openings actually outpaced store closures by almost two to one. There were many reasons why. One of them is that people still say they like shopping in person. Corsight Research tracks the store data, and so far, they show the trend is continuing this year. Wow. I mean, that really goes against, like, the conventional wisdom. Things we think we know. Yeah. So so who's opening all these stores? Dollar stores. Hundreds mm. and hundreds of dollar stores. We're talking Dollar General, Five Below, Family Dollar. They've been on a years-long expansion. John Mercer, who heads up global research at Corsite, explained that this explosion of discount retail is driven by some really big societal themes. You've got an aging population with many healthcare expenses, lots of people on fixed income, younger people who have to be price conscious, a growing wealth disparity. You've got all these structural factors that are feeding into what we call a discount store decade. The discount store decade, meaning the 2020s, is the renaissance of discount stores. Not only dollar stores, but also online sellers, off-price stores like TJ Maxx in Burlington, and even big box stores like Walmart. So that's good news for those discount stores. But I, I also want to ask you about Bed Bath & Beyond. We know that chain is on the brink of bankruptcy. Is it going to disappear this year? Well, bankruptcy doesn't necessarily mean a company completely disappears. What we know is that Bed Bath & Beyond is considering bankruptcy, but it's not there yet. This week, the company did report another quarter of losses losing both shoppers and money. And it has expanded the list of stores it plans to close, which includes a few of its Bye Bye Baby locations. Also, I want to note another thing about closures. Wanted to mention that we are seeing a bunch of closures from CVS, though that's part of a long-running plan to shift more to online sales. And Macy's is also closing four stores. Speaking of Macy's, like, what's happening with department stores? You know, coming out of the lockdowns of the pandemic, like, where do they stand? They did survive the pandemic, though some chains are sort of stuck in that loop of trying to get more shoppers in the door. Retail expert Katie Thomas, who leads the Carney Consumer Institute, called these the mushy middle. They aren't luxury, which has actually continued to do well. They aren't selling unique things online, and they aren't a big box store where people feel like they're getting an amazing bang for their buck. That is where consumers' habits changed over the pandemic, and they just stopped going to certain places or feeling the need to go there uniquely. When I think of this, I think of actually Bed Bath & Beyond, but also JCPenney, which is still around. Kohl's, Macy's. It's not affecting all department stores universally, but definitely a bit of an identity search that we will keep watching this year. That's NPR's Alina Selyuk. Alina, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. California is awash with trouble. Since December, winter storms have dumped more than 24 trillion gallons of water across the state flooding towns, killing people, and deepening cracks in critical infrastructure. Many of these levees have been around for more than 100 years. It's only a matter of time until they collapse. Tomorrow on Morning Edition, a civil and environmental engineer discusses California's aging levees and how to keep them standing during extreme weather. Tune in by telling your smart speaker to play NPR or your member station by name. 
New college graduates face a big and scary world. Will they find a job? Will they master workplace responsibilities? Will they cross this big old nation in a 27 foot long hot dog? It could happen. Oscar Meyer is hiring for Wienermobile drivers known as hot doggers. Many will apply, but only 12 will be chosen. CJ Zabat Jr. has been one of the few. He was a hot dogger in 2020, and he's here now to tell us all about it. Hi, CJ. Hello. Thank you so much for having me. So I understand um, you didn't go by just CJ in your hot dogger days. Oh, it's true. I was also known on the road as Chili Dog CJ or uh, to the other hot doggers, Chili Boy. Um, Silly Chili was a good one as well. So, yes, that was my hot dogger alias back in the day. I, I love that. And does everybody get an alias? Oh, yeah, for sure. It's one of the uh, many ways we have buns and buns of fun on the road is having a hot dogger name. Buns and buns of fun. I caught that. I caught that. So did you did you have to do some special training to become a hot dogger? Yes, we go to a two week training program called Hot Dog High. And so during that time, we learn how to drive the Wienermobile, of course. Uh, we do a lot of team building exercises since when you're on the road, it's just you and your co-pilot and the entire nation at your foot. So, I mean, driving the, the Wienermobile, like, is it like a regular truck or is it different? <laughs> it's truly unlike anything else um, in this whole wide world. I mean, it's um, a 27-foot-long vehicle. There's nothing in the back that you can see out of, so you have to rely on your mirrors, much like other vehicles of that nature. But at the same time, you know, it's got this unique structure to it. You're sitting up high. Um, you get very attached to the Wienermobiles that you drive, which is super fun, too. You can always tell them apart by the license plate. So I drove Relish Me and Big Bun. <laughs> that is amazing. And I have to imagine that kids go crazy when they see the Wienermobile. Like, do you have, like, a favorite moment? I think one of mine is when All-American Ashley and I were in Denver. And so we drove out to go see Parker the Snow Dog, if you've ever heard of him. He's the honorary mayor of a town outside of Colorado. We had scheduled a meetup for him and for the local school kids. And so it was the biggest dog collab that you've ever seen. Um, and so we pulled up to the town and these kids were going crazy for both Parker and the Wienermobile. So a hot dog and a mayor dog linked up. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's, that's a good one, too. Good pun there as well, Aisha. Link up. I got, I got it a little bit. Yeah. And so what did your family think of this, of you saying, hey, family, I'm going to be a hot dogger? They were a little confused at first, um, but they were super supportive and they loved being able to see the Wienermobile. A lot of my family grew up in the Philippines before they came here. So a lot of them didn't really get when I described the job to them. They're like, okay, so you're like a driver. And it's like, yes, but also like a marketing person. And they're like, okay, like <laughs> marketing. That would be confusing if you're not familiar with the, the Oscar Mayer Wienermobile. It would be a confusing thing. Like you're going to drive a big hot dog around. Yes, yes. So I was glad to be able to show them the magic under the hood. One of my favorite pictures of the year is having my dog Fifi in the Wienermobile with me. And your dog Fifi is a hot dog or? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> she was in that moment. <laughs> <laughs> so 
you know, um, we're we're talking to you because Oscar Meyer is looking for new drivers. So make your best pitch to someone who might be on the edge of just thinking about, should I become a hot dogger? I mean, for me, the Wienermobile was the best year of my life, and I wouldn't have traded it for anything else. I got to learn so much about myself, and I got to learn so much about this entire country by being able to travel to over half of it. Some people think, oh, but I kind of want to have a desk job, or I want to do something else, and I don't want to do just something just for a year. I would say that that'll always be waiting for you when you're done with the Wienermobile. Well, you are definitely a great representative of the the Oscar Mayer Wienermobile, and you just have such a bright spirit. CJ Zabat Jr., thank you so much for talking to us about your days as an Oscar Mayer Wienermobile driver. Yes, Frank's a bunch, Aisha, and uh, thank you to NPR for having me, <laughs> and hope to see y'all real soon. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. BJ Lederman writes our theme music. I'm Aisha Roscoe. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Progressive. Progressive commercial insurance protects small businesses from retailers to tradespeople, covering a variety of business needs with a range of coverages. More for entrepreneurs at ProgressiveCommercial.com. And from Eric and Wendy Schmidt, through the Schmidt Family Foundation, working together to create a just world where all people have access to renewable energy, clean air and water, and healthy food. On the web at theschmidt.org. Thanks for listening to 90.9 WBUR. Good morning. I'm Sharon Brody. It is easy to follow the news. Whatever you're doing this long weekend, just tap to listen on the WBUR mobile app. Join Radio Boston host Tiziana Deering Monday, January 30th at City Space for a conversation and food tasting with celebrity chef Tiffany Faison. For tickets, go to WBUR.org slash events. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Maplewood Country Day Camp, Southeastern Mass, where since 1965, their instructors have helped over 30,000 children learn to swim. MaplewoodYearRound.com. In Haiti, the last remaining senators that made up a once democratically elected legislature have left office. Their terms expired, and elections in Haiti have been postponed indefinitely since 2019. You in a country that is lawless, like the lawlessness that is happening at all levels. A deserted parliament, a power vacuum, and gangs taking over. Tomorrow on Morning Edition from NPR News. Tomorrow morning at 5 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR News Station. I'm executive editor for news Dan Mozzie, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station.